welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We uh, are in the resurrection chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to spend uh, some morning, some, some time this morning rather, in some further reflections on the resurrection before we get to an extended description in the chapter about Christ appearing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. But before we get to that next time, some reflections on the resurrection. Two texts, one we spent quite a bit of time in and we'll re- revisit again today, Luke 24, 6, and then the great chapter that describes the depths of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, a selection from there. So here with me, the magnificent word of God. Luke chapter 24, verse 6, the angels to the women at the tomb, he is not here, but has risen. And 1 Corinthians 15 a portion of Paul's deep teaching on this great subject given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 12. Paul wrote, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is God's holy word. It describes what to the mind of man is indescribable. It reveals what to the mind of man was undiscoverable. May we see these things in the resurrection and more. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Now, as I said in our study of Luke, we've arrived at the resurrection chapter, chapter 24. And as I was uh, going over it this week and comparing it to the other gospel writers' descriptions of the resurrection, I discovered that Luke took the most text and uh, gave the deepest focus to the resurrection event of all of them except for John, who was an eyewitness to it. Luke was writing after the fact, and, and Luke's account was put together from many eyewitnesses that he spent time with in the years in which he served the church. And out of those interviews, those Easter interviews, if you will, he put together his account of the resurrection, but it's very detailed, and, and uh, it really serves as the capstone, not only of the life of the Lord Jesus, of course, but really the, the moving capstone of all that Luke wrote. You get a sense that the book reaches its climax here, and it's, it's so beautiful to, to read and study. Last week, I brought you a message from the first portion of it in, in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke 24, the verse... Uh, First 12 verses in which we discovered resurrection realities. And Luke went out of his way, I think, to, to prove the authenticity of the resurrection. And uh, he wrote it as an historian, and he included details from those that he interviewed that really demonstrated that this could not have been an invented story. He spoke to the people who were there. He collated their accounts. He compared their descriptions. And we've got an historian's eye on the resurrection in Luke's account. And so we went over several of the realities that he put in place to show it historically happened. But also we exploded three myths of the many myths 
that have been invented by the secular society to talk away the resurrection. The three myths were that the, the women went to the wrong tomb, that the disciples together simply hallucinated everything that they recalled and that Luke recorded, or thirdly, that the disciples intend, intended to create a false faith, and so they stole the body and invented the resurrection story. And Luke's account was designed to uh, touch on all of those, in my opinion, and exploded those myths as we talked about last time. So it's a tremendous account. There's still much to go in terms of other people whom I believe Luke interviewed as well, who met Jesus on the road to Emmaus. That's for the next time. But as I continued my study, I continued my meditation on the resurrection. And I want to bring to you a topical message that's kind of condensed from the study I made this week as I pondered further the importance of the resurrection. So I'm not going to be opening further the text today. I'm going to be bringing you a topical message in which I'm going to bring together various texts from the scriptures to bring more light on what the Bible teaches about the resurrection and the things that I discovered doing that. So these are my resurrection reflections, and they are drawn from the scripture. And I, I want to weave them into the celebration of communion that we're going to also experience this communion Sunday. So a little bit of a different message, not so text, so much expositional, but, but textual. Reflections on the resurrection. One of the reasons that this catches my attention as a Bible teacher is because the resurrection and its historical reality have always fascinated me as a believer, maybe because... Uh, deciding to believe in the resurrection represented a dramatic turning point for me in terms of how I looked at the supernatural. You may know that, that I was brought up in a, in a very secular environment, and my, my, uh, my father was, uh, well, a scientific atheist by conviction. He was a, a trained physician, but he'd been brought up in a very naturalistic and materialistic home, I was re reflecting back on the family tree on my father's side that my grandmother left us, and there is no recollection of anyone with a biblical faith for the 150 years or so that, we, that she was able to trace back our family line, an entirely secular family on my father's side driven in part by materialism and science. And from his medical training and his culturalization, he developed a scientific atheist philosophy, and he poured that out into my life. And being the oldest son, I modeled a lot of my thinking after him, and I learned from him to mock the supernatural and trust the natural, the scientific, the material, as the only reality that exists but as I began to encounter believers who were exactly the opposite and began to challenge my assumptions, it put me into a crisis about whether I was being intellectually honest. Because when facts were presented to, to, to back up the authority of the Bible, the reality of the resurrection, the existence of Jesus, the reality of his life and death, and the historical validity of his resurrection, I had to confront myself with the fact that to me, some facts were acceptable and some were not, even though they were both facts. If the facts pointed to the supernatural, I would, I would reject them because that was my father's bias. But if the facts pointed to the natural or the material, I accepted them, and I realized I wasn't being intellectually honest. And so there was a point in time where uh, I turned from my bias, and I looked at the facts surrounding the reality of the resurrection, and I accepted not only the resurrection, but I accepted into my life the risen Christ that the resurrection proves exists today. How could Jesus change your life if he's not alive today? The Christians kept telling me that they'd met him in a real personal way by trusting him by faith as their Savior and Lord, and that he'd come into their lives and change their lives, story after story after story that I couldn't deny. And so my only conclusion was he must be alive. If, if historical facts support the resurrection, resurrection means he's alive and living today, and in some way as, as, a, as, as a living God can invade my being. 
That's what they said happened to them. And one, one midnight encounter with him was when I bowed the knee and I trusted him in, in, in light of these facts. So I turned from my doubt to my belief and Jesus Christ wasted little time in changing my darkened world into a world flooded with the light of knowing him. So I turned, although my father never did, and we would debate for decades until his death, the same facts, the same demand for a conclusion. He never did turn from trusting the material and becoming willing to believe in the supernatural, as far as I know. And so this bears a personal connection to me. It marked a departure from my family, my intellectual moorings, my training, my belief system. And I, I risked it all that midnight on whether Jesus really was alive. And he wasted little time in changing my life and proving to me that he's very much alive. So it's a precious doctrine to me. It's fascinated me ever since then, and I've studied it and become even more convinced than ever in this secular society that it's absolutely a true event. But not only has it been fascinating, it's always something that I've known is essential to Christianity. If you throw out the resurrection, as you might have heard taught, you have no Christianity of any reality. William Lane Craig, who's a, 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 an apologist and a student of of the resurrection, put it this way, without the belief in the resurrection, the Christian faith could not have come into being. Think this through for a minute. The disciples would have remained crushed and defeated men. Absolutely true. Even had they continued to remember Jesus as their beloved teacher, his crucifixion would have forever silenced any hopes of his being their Messiah. The cross would have remained the sad and shameful end of Christ's career the origin of Christianity therefore hinges on the belief of the early disciples that God has raised Jesus from the dead, end of quote. So it's, it's not only a fascination in, in terms of a point in history, but it's essential to the Christian faith. If it didn't happen, throw out your Christianity. If it didn't happen, the Christian faith would never had, have had a living beginning. It would have had a sudden end before it started. I think Craig's point is well put. If you throw out the resurrection, you're throwing out Christianity. Not just the possibility of Christianity, but as I discovered, it's power. These Christians kept telling me, it's not only historically true, he lives in, in me. I've met him. He's changing me day to day. He's alive and risen. So not only were they talking about a point in history that, that could be proven, they were talking about a present power that could alter me. I can tell you after 40 years of knowing him, both are still true. So the resurrection, reflecting on it is, is important because of its connection to your faith, but also because of the power it can unleash in your Christian life. So I want to talk about two aspects of this today. I want to talk about the phenomenon of the resurrection as taught by multiple scriptures. There are three things about it that you need to understand as a Christian that make it even more unique, more of a cornerstone in your intellectual placement as a Christian. Three things about the resurrection that make it phenomenal. And then I want to spend a few moments talking about the power of the resurrection. Three impact points that the Bible says it will have in your new millennium life, just as it did in mine. So let's go to the first one. The phenomenon of the resurrection. Now you think, uh, sometimes when I put my outlines together, you think, well, Pastor, you've done this hundreds and hundreds of times over the many years of your career. You just find words that work. And since you're kind of a recovering Baptist, most of the time you try and make them alliterated, right? And sometimes you might think that preachers just throw words up there because they, they rhyme or they, they fill out an outline. And, and sometimes I have to admit I've been guilty of that. But... Uh, most of the time, I choose them very carefully. I'm intentional about that. I'm not just playing rhetorical games up here for you. 
And so when I looked at the word phenomenon and connected it to the resurrection, I was again, as I have been in, in the past, very careful. I chose it carefully. The word phenomenon in the dictionary is described as a rare occurrence or a wonder. That's certainly the resurrection of Jesus. A rare occurrence? How about a unique occurrence? A singular occurrence in history? And a wonder? Oh, that too. So it is a rare occurrence, a singular occurrence, and a wonder. We could call it a phenomenon. It's unique in history. And there are three things about it that you may understand in, in dim form, but I want to bring more detail today to remind you of just how important it is in your Christianity. Three things you should always remember about this phenomenon of the resurrection. Number one, it is foundational. It is foundational to our faith. What we hold together as a body of truth. Already I, I quoted Dr. Craig as saying that the Christian faith wouldn't have even begun if, if it was hinged to a lie or if, if the resurrection had not happened. But do you know that your Bible wouldn't make any sense either? Some people claim to, to be Christians and yet not believe in the resurrection. It's impossible, if that's your case, for you to read the Bible and make any sense out of it whatsoever. Think about it for a moment. The Gospels, they're all built in, in a moving way, just like Luke's Gospel, as I described it to you. They move to the climactic point of the crucifixion punctuated by the resurrection, don't they? They're all about this. The preaching life of Christ was all oriented toward Passion Week and toward the third day, how many times he preached it. So if you're going to look at the Gospels, they testify to the resurrection of Christ. The detailed narratives of all of them move along that story. You throw out the resurrection, they're pointless books. They might be filled with some interesting parables and some stirring stories, but they have no reality that, that binds them all together. On the other hand, if the resurrection happened, they all point to a great unifying event, crucifixion, resurrection. You don't believe in the resurrection? Why read your Gospels? They will not make any sense to you. They're about an event that you don't believe in. Think further, the book of Acts that's a detailed narrative of what the risen Christ did in the world. And, and when, when Jesus was teaching his disciples about his resurrection, he says, I am going back to the Father, and it is necessary that I go, for when I go, then I will send who? The Holy Spirit. And he will be in you, and he will do greater works through you than I did among you. He will build my church and that's what the book of Acts is about. You've often heard it said that the book of Acts could also be called the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit through God's people. The Holy Spirit could only have come if Jesus had gone. And so we have the, the book of Acts would make no sense to you. It's about a Jesus who is alive and reigning and changing people. So all those those accounts would have no meaning, would have no supernatural basis. So no meaning to the Gospels, no point to the book of Acts. And then you've got the rest of your New Testament, the epistles. What are they all built around? Well, they were all written entirely to a, a living body of people called the church. And dwelt by whom? The Holy Spirit, sent by whom? The risen Lord Jesus. And what does Ephesians say about Jesus? He is the head of the church. And so everything written in the epistles is designed and oriented and is truth packaged for a, a body of people, the church, that wouldn't exist if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. It would just be a bunch of religious language, organizational ideas for a religious people. So you, you, there'd be no meaning to the gospels, no point to the book of Acts, and no church to write the epistles to. There'd be no point in any of this. I hope you see it. And of course, the book of Revelation uh, repeatedly points to the, the great return of Christ. Well, if there's no resurrection, there can be no return. No reigning of Christ, no resolution of wickedness, no defeat of evil, no, no settling of human sin, no dealing with human eternity. All of that is hopeless without the resurrection. 
So I hope you see that it not only makes uh, your Bible make clear, clear sense, but it's also foundational to, to the power of all the truths within it. That creates a question in, in, in so, many, so many points of time that, and, and, and it's a blunt question, and I'll ask it. Some people might be too timid to, but uh, can a person be a Christian if they don't believe in the resurrection? Thank you. You can't be. I just proved it to you. You're playing intellectual games with the truth of the New Testament you claim to believe. Can a Christian be can a person be a Christian who really doesn't believe in, in the resurrection of Jesus? No. And of course, the scripture reflects this in Romans 10. The scripture says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God what? Raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you read that and in, 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 read it backward in, ten, in terms of the condition of salvation, believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the essence of a decision to believe and be saved. If you don't believe the one, you can't experience the other. The, the scripture is pretty clear. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, which we touched on just in our earlier reading, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, empty. You are still in your sins. So the scripture says without the resurrection of Jesus, you not only have no, no hope, you have no, no faith. You have a faith that means nothing. So no, you can't be a Christian if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus as the scripture teaches it. And we're going to get into what that means in a minute. You could put it another way. Christianity without the resurrection is not Christianity. It's something else. You can get involved in that something else at your own eternal peril, but let's not play games about this. So the phenomenon of the resurrection, first of all, is you need to remember that it is foundational to, to, to the faith itself. Secondly, it was an eternal event. And, and I struggled with the wording on this, because the eternal, as it comes to Jesus, is, is a, is a never-ending and never-beginning concept. He has always been eternal God, and he will always be eternal God. So you might, I might substitute the, the, the phrase, it was a resurrection to everlasting life. Everlasting means never-ending into the future, with no death, no end point into the future. What I'm trying to say here is that Jesus did not experience a resurrection that was temporary. That's why is that important? Well, because um, a number of other people in the historical record other than Jesus have come back from the dead. If you know your Bible, you know what I'm talking about. They came back from the dead, and in certain places in the Old Testament, Elijah raised the son of the widow Zarephath, raised her son from the dead. He came back from death into physical life again. And, of course, we know that Jesus, several times in his ministry, raised Jairus' daughter, who had been dead and was in the midst of her own funeral, raised the son of the widow of Nain as he was being carried on a casket. Remember the story? Outside the town, on the way to the cemetery, you don't get deader than that. <laughs> raised him up in the casket to where they... They shuddered on their shoulders and had to bring the casket down, and in there was a living man. So, and of course, we, we know the most famous of all, and that was Lazarus, who was four days dead, and who, when they rolled the stone, stumbled out of the tomb in the grave clothes. And so, there were others who were raised from the dead, but what's the distinction there? Well, they, they, they came back from the dead temporarily. They would all go on and age because they came back into their original bodies. They would go all, all go on and age, and each one of these went on and weakened through age and through illness, and they got sick again, and they died again. So they have another distinction. Not only were they raised from the dead at a point in time in Bible history, they died twice. Went through that twice, and in fact knew what they were heading to. So they were temporary. They were risen back into the same body and the same world to face the same fate again. And now their spirits are with the Lord, as 
I just, you, you got to think about the human impact of knowing that that's, that's going to happen. That had to settle on them after a while. Particularly Lazarus. You got to think about Lazarus might have been the most cranky recipient of a miracle. I mean, you think about Lazarus for a minute. He was Christ's dear friend. Christ lets him die. And Lazarus is then called back. And, and you know, the Bible tells us that Lazarus became a, a, a huge point of curiosity after that. He lived just a, a few minutes walk outside Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that people came by the thousands from Jerusalem out to see the risen Lazarus to kind of crowd around his house and peek in the window and see what he looked like. Or maybe if they got close enough to him to put a hand on his shoulder just to see if he was real and look into his eyes. Or maybe if you got bold enough and you were close enough to him, you could ask him, so what was it like being dead and now being here? And I got to think if Lazarus was truly honest and he wasn't being political, he would have said, what was it like? I was in paradise, dude paradise with the Lord, with all those that I loved that knew him that I didn't think I'd see again in paradise and everything that goes with it in my spirit. I was there. And then all of a sudden I hear my name called Lazarus come forth. Before that he had probably, he probably had to say Lazarus come back, come back. My sovereign will's not done. Come back and now come forth. And he, he had to, he, 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 shoom, he's back into that same old body. And he is compelled to walk out, and, and then the stone is rolled, and then he sees his family, and he sees Jesus, and realizes he's part of maybe the, well, the greatest miracle, perhaps, of time itself. And. His life goes on, but I'm sure as he was talking to people back in his mind, he was thinking, they think this is so awesome, but it really isn't. My back still hurts. My hair's still thin. And Martha still can't cook. I mean, it's just, it's the worst. And what did he know? He knew that this wasn't permanent and he was still going to taste death. Of course, there was the memory of paradise, much like was given to Paul, that carried Paul through the deepest suffering imaginable, a foretaste given to him of the paradise and the presence of God, things unutterable. That was a gift. But you see, those resurrections were all, you, you wouldn't call them resurrections, they were kind of temporary restorations is what they were. Is that what it was like for Jesus to rise. Oh, no. You see, he rose in an entirely different way. He rose permanently, and he rose not into an old, broken body like Lazarus might have had. Oh, 1 Corinthians 15, that's why I read it to you, talks about this, and it says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Who are those who have fallen asleep? Everybody that's a believer that's experienced physical death. And Jesus, when he rose, was the first fruits of what we are going to be like. What was the first fruits? When a farmer planted a crop, he would go out to the part of the field that he knew due to the conditions of that area were, were where the first fruits were breaking through the soil or bearing out on the trees. And it was when it had just become ripe enough, he would take that and he would taste it or he would bring it out and he would show it to those that would buy it. And it was a symbol of the harvest to come. He would know that, that if, if the fruit was such a size and such a color or the grain was, was a, such a thickness, he could promise to those that were waiting for it that yours will be just like this. And the Bible says that the body of Jesus Christ, he rose as the first fruits of those like us who will fall asleep in physical death. 
Oh, this is awesome. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as, at, or as in Adam and all die, that's not just spiritual death, but physical death. We know that was the, the, the twin, twin elements of the curse of God. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then as at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Notice we're joined together here in the sense of the way Jesus rose is the way he will rise. Now, how did he rise? Did he rise to a new body? Yes, in the sense that it was taken from the, the physical limitations that he had allowed to be imposed on it, and it was a new body with a new kind of, of, of sense to it that would be never-ending. New body, new kind of resurrection life designed to be never-ending, designed to never die again, not like Lazarus coming back to the old body, still, still uh, uh, kind of encrypted with sin, but no, Jesus had a resurrection body. Now, there's other dimensions to Christ's physical life and body prior to his death that I don't go, I don't go into. There's not a perfect comparison to Lazarus, but, but it was a resurrection body of a new kind. That's the thing I want you to hear. When we rise, we are rising to new kinds of bodies with the ability to take a new kind of life. And get this, they are immortal. They are everlasting. Not temporary, everlasting. That's good news. Because I have an eternal death problem and I need an eternal body, an everlasting body to answer that. But that's what makes the resurrection of Jesus so remarkable. It, it was the first everlasting one. Now, nobody had ever been raised from the dead in exactly that way. No one has ever since been raised from the dead in exactly that way. But catch this, believer. If you're a Christian, you'll join all of us, and all of us will soon be raised in exactly that way. We're going to get a body just like his. It's going to be a new body with a new kind of ability to, to, to taste a new kind of life, and it will be immortal. It'll never end, never die. I don't know about you. I'm looking forward to that. Whew. The phenomenon of the resurrection foundational everything we believe if you don't believe in it you don't have anything called christianity secondly it, it, it was an eternal event it, it resulted in an everlasting resurrection body and a permanent one that we're going to have and thirdly and don't miss this some might, some might think it's obvious but some it's, it's for some it's not it was a physical resurrection it is very important that you understand jesus rose physically now some believe that they can be Christians and believe in a resurrection and say, these are what you might call liberal Christians or I have a different word. How about incorrect Christians? But anyway, um, that can't put their minds around the supernatural. Not much of a difference there between there and my family history. But they say Jesus rose in spirit. Some that are even more uh, anti-supernatural just say Jesus lives on today is an idea. And they actually believe they can build a Christianity around that. It doesn't have a lot of mileage to it. It's not Christian. I just proved that to you. But no, the, the, the resurrection needed to be physical for at least two reasons. Number one, it needed to be physical in order to be powerful because the Bible says I'm not, I'm not only spiritually dead, I face a physical death as a result of my sin. That's what happened to Adam. As in Adam, Corinthians says, all die, both spiritually and physically. So I face physical death, and I need a physical solution. And so for the resurrection to be powerful in my life, it needed to be physical. Jesus needed to break the bonds of physical death. But here's something you might not have thought about. The other reason, among many, that it's important that his resurrection was physical is it, it, was, it was physical in the sense because it needed to be provable. You ever think about this? If I, if I tell you something happened, you're ultimately going to, something like that, you're going to need visible evidence, aren't you? 
It has to be provable. Anybody can say Jesus rose in spirit. And you can't disprove that. But you also can't find any evidence to prove that. I mean, maybe you've been at a funeral service or, and, and people are gathered around and they're talking about the person that passed. And I'm, I'm sure this has happened to you. You're standing there talking and it's a secular crowd. And you're talking about the person's life and how kind she was and how much she'll be missed. And then inevitably somebody will pop up and say, but she's not really gone. She's still with us. In fact, I'm sure she's looking down on us right now. I know you've heard it. I've heard it a zillion times from the secular mind without a biblical basis. And what do you do? In your mind, you say, well, that's quaint. I guess if that's what they need to believe. But do you give it any credence? No. What would it be like if the moment that person said it, you turned around there in the restaurant and sitting right next to you, there she is, <laughs> ordering a Caesar salad, eating it in front of you, nudging you with her elbow and saying, can you pass the salt? Good to see you again. Oh, that would be remarkable. What would you be thinking then? I'm freaking out to what I'm thinking then. She really is here. Why? It's provable in time and space. Jesus rose because I needed a physical solution to my problem as death through sin, but also to be provable. I needed to be powerful and provable. And 1 Corinthians 15 kind of touches on this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered, Paul said to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Pause there. Did Jesus die spiritually or physically? It was a physical death, wasn't it? Absolutely. Let me go on. That he was buried. Pause. Was he buried spiritually? Physically. That he was raised. Oh, just, just, just spiritually at that point. No, the narrative's complete, to be completely consistent. It's physical all the way through. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Simon Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, so there were personal witnesses to attest to the fight of the fact that they walked up to and spoke to the visible Jesus Christ. So the, the scripture says he appeared in, in, in physical form. He was seen, and of course, all the way through the New Testament accounts of his resurrection, there are multiple ways in which it seems like the Bible goes out of its way to show that he was physically there in the room. Just a few of these, about eight of them that I've kind of got, got here. The nail prints in his hand and his feet were retained in the resurrection body of Christ. I think because of the meaning of them and what they're going to be meaning to us in eternity future, but also, what? A visible, physical proof the Bible says, by many infallible proofs, he demonstrated he was risen from the dead. So the first was the nail prints in his hands and his feet, or his wrists and his feet. And then John chapter 20, John also says he retained the wound in his side from the spear point. Same, same. And, and that's, of course, what Thomas was invited to touch. Physical. Out of his way, Jesus demonstrated he's, he's physically risen. Third, in the various appearances of Christ, he was recognizable by the same disciples who knew him. He, they recognized his visible, physical form. Fourth, in, in his appearances to the disciples in the upper room, he deliberately ate food with them. Did you ever catch that? What? He, he, he ate food to prove to them that he was not just a spirit. He was not just an idea. He wasn't just a figment of their imagination. He wasn't just a spiritual hologram. He was real, physical in his, in his resurrection body. It, it had such a material nature, number five, that, that it could be felt. How do we know that? He said, go ahead. Touch me. Go ahead. See that I am flesh and bone, that I'm not a spirit. And six, 
it's pretty obvious from the others, his body was visible to the natural eye. You didn't have to go into a trance to see him. You didn't have to really, 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 really want really, really hard to see him. And then finally, you visualized him. He walked in. And you saw him. And you knew it was him. You recognized his face. You could touch his hands. You could see the wounds. In John chapter 20, verse 22, don't miss it. Scripture says he breathed on them. He even let him see him breathe. What? Real body, folks, is the point I'm trying to make. I'm on my sixth point here on the seventh. The last is that the, the Christ specifically said, I am flesh and bone. You refuted the idea that he was just an appearance or a spirit. So it's all very powerful. And maybe that's why, and, and it was read in our hearing earlier, John, 60 years later, writing to a culture that was really torn up by the idea of some people saying, well, the, 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 the physical is one aspect of reality, but then there's a whole realm of other reality in the spirit world, and getting people all mixed up about that and who Christ was. John began his epistle in 1 John by recounting the fact that Jesus Christ was a real human being. He lived a real physical life. John knew him for three years physically, and then he met him one morning, one evening, as a resurrected Christ. First John 1, that which was from the beginning. I think that's talking about from the day I met him on the shore of Jordan, which we have heard. Listen to Jesus. Listen to his physical voice. Listen to him teach hour after hour, which we have seen with our eyes. When was that? Three years and then one incredible resurrection day. Oh, it gets even further, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. Resurrection. Resurrection life. A risen Christ made manifest. It was undeniable, and we have seen it, all of us who were there, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, the resurrection presence of Christ, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also. So um, the resurrection was a phenomenon, folks. Don't ever let anybody misteach you about those aspects of it. Let me rush to the second, and we'll move this to a focused close. The power of the resurrection. Let's go from what they experienced that day, who they touched, what they saw, the past history, Let's go to the present, and there are three ways in which the resurrection brings present power. It brought it to me that midnight when I trusted Christ, and it can do the same for you. Three things quickly in the present day. Number one, it makes our own resurrection possible. What does that mean? It means that as Jesus was given a resurrection body, so you will be. Remember it said he's the first fruits. Scripture repeats this many places, 1 Corinthians 6. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. You better know by now, Jesus wasn't raised just as an idea or spiritually. He was raised physically, and so will we be. 2 Corinthians 4, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. But then, of course, you've got 1 Corinthians 15, and I won't go back there for the sake of time, but remember I read the verse, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits is is that, uh, that first taste of the ripening crop that shows what the rest of harvest will be exactly like. That shows you what your resurrection body is going to be like, folks. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, I will read this for you. In 1 Corinthians 15, 49, the scripture does say, just in one verse, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So what does this tell you about your future if you die? What's your everlasting physical future? unimaginable, but just like Jesus' was. You're going to have a body like his. First John 3, again, repeats it. So Jesus, you could put it this way, Jesus was the resurrection original. And we will be the organic image of that. We're going to be living copies of that physically. 
And so you can go off and do a Bible study that'll last you for weeks on what your body's going to be like in heaven. And, uh, but take a look at Jesus for a minute. It was a perfectly, perfect physical body, wasn't it? Perfect. People say, we're going to recognize one another in heaven. They recognize Jesus. He looked a little different to them. And we'll probably look a little different to each other, I think, for two reasons. Number one, we will have never seen perfection before. But you're going to see that beloved loved one in heaven perfect. Some of you ladies are looking at your husband saying, finally. (laughs) Finally. But you'll also see us without the presence or the burden or the sorrows of sin. Doesn't sorrow age a person? Doesn't sorrow cloud the way they look? Perfect, physically beautiful. At the, at the point of physical beauty that you were created to have. People say, are we going to be old or young in heaven? I'm not sure, but I, whatever God, age God chooses to eternalize me, it's going to be my perfect look. I'll just leave that with you. <laughs> Jesus had all of his senses, didn't he? He tasted food. He touched things. He let himself be touched. He listened to her. That means all, all five of your senses are going to be there. Some Bible teachers have said, we just have the basic learners set. We have the training wheels of senses on this earth. Who knows how many senses God can give an everlasting body? Ever thought of that? Oh, my goodness. It's like all the colors you can't see because of your limited eyes. What kind of senses might we have that last forever and they're all perfect and they, they all have the capacity to take it in? And then here's the real kicker. Jesus veiled his glory before he ascended. So even the, the resurrection body they saw was sort of like these new lights we have on the lowest little, little level of, of full illumination. But when he ascended, boom, glory. He's, he's in his glorious resurrection body now. And you know what? When you and I get to heaven, we're going to be in the presence of God whose glory is unsurvivable until, unless you get that heavenly body. Then you're going to have the ability to be in his presence and take in the glory of God. How? I don't know. I'm certainly not going to argue about it. So it's, it makes our own resurrection possible, and I would say greatly anticipated. Second, it makes our regeneration possible. Now we get to, and people think about the resurrection as as being just our physical advantage. Oh, actually what Jesus achieved in terms of the the spiritual realities that'll take place are even better than the physical. They're more important. There's two, regeneration. First Peter 1, 3, Peter says, we have been born again or born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I don't know how this all connects that, that moment when, when new life is birthed in you by the Holy Spirit. I'll borrow some words from a theologian I read this week. Quote, here Peter explicitly connects Jesus' resurrection with our regeneration or new birth. When Jesus rose from the dead, he had a new quality of life, a resurrection life and a human body and human spirit that were perfectly suited for fellowship and obedience to God forever. In his resurrection, Jesus earned for us a new life just like his. We do not receive all of that new resurrection life when we become Christians but our, for our bodies remain as they are, still subject to weakness, aging, and death. But in our spirits, we are made alive with new resurrection power. Is that not true? That's what comes alive in a person when they meet Christ. In our spirits, we're made alive with, a new, resurre- with new resurrection power. Thus, it is through his resurrection that Christ earned for us the new kind of life we receive when we are born again. Peter ties them together. That's why Paul can say that God quote, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him. How does that work? I don't understand it, but I sure accept it and praise God for that. When God raised Christ from the dead, he thought of us as somehow being raised with Christ and therefore deserving of the merits of Christ's resurrection. Paul says his goal in life is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. This is a mystery. You'll never get to the end of this before you see Jesus. But somehow, Paul knew that even in this life, the resurrection of Christ gave new power for Christian ministry through the miracle of regeneration. No resurrection, no regeneration. And that's what happened. My dad decided to stick with the facts, the material facts, and deny that they pointed to the possibility of supernatural. I chose 
to step out by faith in the facts and the supernaturally indicated that midnight decision. And I changed. The risen Christ swept into to who I was. And even my father, weeks later, demanded to know what has happened to you. And when I told him, he rejected it. But even he could see there was a new life present within me. It makes our regeneration possible. And then thirdly, most importantly, really, in terms of your eternal relationship with God, it makes our justification possible. That's the greatest accomplishment of the resurrection. It's not the fact that Jesus, through that, enabled me to have a physical rescue and an eternal physical life or even a transformation in, 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 in my spirit, but justification is tied to the resurrection. Romans 4.25, Paul said Jesus was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Again, how this is all tied together is one of the great works of salvation, but when Christ was raised from the dead, it was as as if God was putting his stamp of approval on, on all of the work of his life, his perfect life, and his work of redemption. Christ humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, and therefore God highly exalted him. The the scripture connects those in Philippians 2. When Jesus was raised from the dead, God the Father says, I approve of the life my son lived, the death he died, the wrath he took, and the saving he did. (laughs) That's why the resurrection is the hinge point of Christianity. So... There it is. I I appreciate you hanging with me through some theological mazes. This was the meditation of my heart this week as it went back and forth. But it does arrive at the great work, and that is he justified you so you can go to heaven. That's the biggest thing the resurrection accomplished. And maybe that last reason is the reason why communion, which we're now going to prepare our hearts to celebrate, is linked solidly with the resurrection. I don't know if you know it. If you go from 1 Corinthians 15... Back to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know that teaches resurrection? If he hadn't raised, he wouldn't be coming. So right between the word death and and is resurrection. No resurrection, there would be no death to remember. There'd just be a death to grieve, right? No resurrection, no return to expect. But it's all brought together. So in a moment, as we take communion together as as believers, pause and remember that he is not only dead, but risen. And he's with you, not in some strange way through the wafer in your hand. No, we don't believe that here. We don't believe there's some kind of odd little miracle that transforms that bread into the body. No, the sacrifice was made 2,000 years ago. And the resurrection proved it never had to be made again. Oh, no. But he is alive. And he is present among us. And as we commune before him and remember his death, in that he is glorified.